You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at Spindle City Vineyard. If I have not had the privilege of meeting you, my name is Brittany and I'm on staff as one of the pastors here. And if you're online, we love having you. We're so glad that you're tuning in from all over the world. We know we've got folks logging on from the West Coast and the East Coast, so hi. Um, If you're from another place, let us know in the comments. And if you're here in person and we haven't met you, or even if we have, please use that Connect card, digital or in person. Um, It really helps us to know what's going on in your life, and it helps us to essentially take steps on that journey of following Jesus together, whether that's a prayer request, you know, questions that you have about the sermon, stuff you want to volunteer and get engaged with. But if you are joining us online or in person for the first time, we are in the book of Matthew. We are celebrating Jesus's birthday, um, which is one of my favorite times of year because I think every day we should be focusing all of our attention and affection and devotion on him like we're singing. But sometimes, like Dan said, yeah, stuff just kind of interrupts our vision point, right? And we kind of fall off track. And so, I don't know, for whatever reason, maybe because it's his birthday, Christmas just brings us back to the center of everything that matters and hanging out with him. And I'm excited because I get to do the second part of chapter one. Last week, Imani brought us through all the genealogies. Bless you guys for sitting out. They are so important. They don't make sense to us half the time because of our Western lens, but they are really, really significant. Today, we're going to talk about Jesus's conception story, but I'm going to start in sort of a a different spot. Um, For those of you who grew up in the United States, you probably went through some form of education that taught you about American history. And more than 150 years ago, our country was anything but united. Um, Basically, because of issues around states' rights and economics, war erupted, and the northern states and the southern states fought one another. And about 700,000 people died, and that doesn't sound like a lot to us, because Cohoes has 16,000 people in it alone. But based on percentages, that would be like 6 million people dying in America today. So there's a huge portion of the population that was lost. But actually, the majority of them didn't die in battle fighting one another. The majority of them died in, uh, because of infections, things that happened after the battle because of wounds and really unsanitary conditions. I know you're like, this is a great Christmas message. I'm so excited. Um, the most lethal of these diseases, one of the most lethal, was gangrene, which is actually the localized uh, de- decomposition of muscles and tissue in your body. I know, it's super gross. And there wasn't a lot of great medical care back then because they were still figuring out science and learning about germs and viruses. I know. I wanted to start off with a bang. I knew you wouldn't forget this one. I don't have any pictures of gangrene, and I don't have any pictures of the common cause, which would have been an amputation. Because sometimes things get so infected that the only way to really cure them is by starting over. Now, thankfully, most of us are not going to have gangrene, I hope, in our lifetime. Um, But does anybody recognize this screen? The next slide, please. Sorry, Jeff. You're like, uh. Has anybody ever seen this before? What is that called? Do you know? The We Are Sorry screen. The blue screen of death. Yeah, this, I don't know. For some reason, maybe antivirus protection has gotten better. I don't think the internet's a safer place. Um, But this used to be like a really big thing when people got computers and we started having them. And usually you would get a virus. I mean, how many of us downloaded from like Napster or LimeWire? If you're not of that generation, so sorry, you got your music legally. We did not for a long time. But we would get these things, and the, really the only way to salvage your computer, to save it, was to go and completely erase it. 
you lost everything. You lost all the data. You had to like factory reset that sucker and start from scratch. Because sometimes things get so infected that the only way to save them is by starting over. And this is, unfortunately, the plight of the world. We've just spent so much time in the Old Testament. And I love the Old Testament because it talks about our crazy, right? It, it just illuminates why humanity is the way that it is. In fact, the first 11 chapters of Genesis answer all of those questions that people have. Why does suffering exist? Why do bad things happen? Why is there disease and death and famine and poverty and war and, and just crisis and chaos everywhere we look? But then as we go a little further in the Bible, we find out that the answer isn't easy for any of us to stomach because the Bible says it's us. <laughs> it's us. Hi, we're the problem, it's us. I always try to get these like little worship team auditions in here and Dan never ever takes me up on it after. But anyway, yes, we are the problem. The Bible says, hey, all of the destruction and chaos and all of the things you see around you that are bad, you are the root cause of all of them. In fact, it is a reoccurring theme throughout the Old Testament that we are the cause. And Psalm, 40, Psalm 14 says, the Lord looks down from heaven on the entire human race. He looks to see if anyone is truly wise, if anyone seeks God. But no, all have turned away. All have become corrupt. No one does good. Not a single one. And at least we have each other for company. Like none of us can sit here and say, hey, I have arrived as the supreme human. God's like, no, actually, you're all a mess. You're all crazy. You're all struggling to, to pull yourselves together. And that's hard to hear because we want to believe that we're good people. Right? Like, I, I want to be a good person. You hear people say that all the time. I'm a good person. And that's true, like sometimes we do do good things, right? We donate, we volunteer, we're compassionate or empathetic or we're, we're generous. But as much as we do those good things, if we're honest with ourselves and one another, there's a lot of times we do some not so good things, like road rage or expressing our frustration to our coworkers in a way that's really not appropriate. Um, we don't always, I don't always parent my kids with the grace and compassion and empathy that they deserve as little humans. Um, we all have implicit bias. Every single one of us is opinionated about things. <laughs> and we tend to, if we're honest, be mostly biased towards ourselves, our needs, the things we want and we're driven for, the things that, am I moving that much? I, okay. <laughs> Sorry, online <laughs> Kaka, kaka, stop moving outside of your box, Brittany. Um, yes. Well, anyway, aside from the fact that I, mine, it's not a sin thing that I just move. I just am Italian and my legs and my arms can't stay still. But anyway, God tells us that this dynamic, this tension between good and not good, is, it's, it's called sin. That's what the Bible calls it. I think you can also call it selfishness in a broad sort of sense. But effectively, it's this lethal virus that has infected all of humanity, and it's the root cause of all the crazy, all the war, the poverty, the injustice, the greed. Everything kind of comes back to this inverted sense of, I want to be in control. I want to define what is good and bad so that I am the one who benefits from all of this. And so God says, this is, this is the problem that we're all facing. None of us have to say, like, well, I'm not like the other person. We are. We're all like this on the inside. And because of that, we have infected all of creation or the world around us with this selfishness, and we're causing it to cave in on itself. 
right? We see the consequences in our communities. We see them in our societies at large. We see it all around the globe. And sometimes things get so infected that the only way to fix it is to start over. And this is what the whole of the Bible is about. The whole of the story isn't just that, oh, we're these horrible human beings and God's so sorry that he created us, which he does say that at least once or twice. Um, But that God says, I can't leave you like this. I want to give you a do-over, a reset, a brand new, fresh start. And so in the Old Testament, God explains why we're crazy and all the consequences around our crazy. And then he, he, we basically read the Old Testament and recognize that humanity can't fix our crazy. As much as we might try to be good people and do all the good things, we keep doing all the bad things too. And God says, you are going to need something bigger. You're going to need an external cure for that crisis that's inside. And so the whole Old Testament is also a setup for that great big rescue plan that we are, we get glimpses and glimmers of this new person that God is gonna send, a human who isn't infected with sin and selfishness and who doesn't have that virus inside of them, who's going to be able to actually give us that restart that we need. And the first little glimmer we have of this person is in Genesis 3.15, and I added some boxes for my own. Um, I like the Amplified, but sometimes I do my Britney's amplification. Uh, It says, I will cause hostility between you, which is selfishness and sin, and the woman, and between your offspring, which is evil, and her offspring, which is humanity. And he, Jesus, will strike your head, and you will strike his heel. And so this hero that we've been waiting for, well, that's who we celebrate at Christmas. Let's pray, and we'll jump into our main text. Jesus, you are um, everything, and we need you in ways that we probably don't even all realize, that you have come and done incredible work, and I pray that this morning you would, you would help us to accept that and receive that in the deepest part of ourselves. We all need a fresh start somehow, some way this morning in our relationships, in our, in our health, in our families, maybe just in our very souls, our very salvation, Lord. And you came to do it, and I pray that we would say yes. In Jesus' name. So each of the gospel writers, and if that's a new word for you, that's totally fine. The gospels are the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And each of these dudes hung out with, with Jesus, and they basically record all of the stuff that was going on, but they all had a different perspective or reason for writing their individual books. Matthew's priority, he was the, the, they think he was the tax collector that's referred to in the different accounts. So this is a numbers guy, so bless his heart. He says, I want to show everyone that Jesus is the Messiah, the promised human that we've heard about all through the Old Testament, by factually showing how his life has lined up with all those Old Testament prophecies. So Matthew's like, all right, let's get the data out. Let's make the charts. Let's graph it. So if, you're, if you think that way, then Matthew is absolutely like a spirit person for you. But also, it's really helpful because he does a lot of the hard work of going back to the Old Testament and showing us all the ways that Jesus is the bridge between those two things. And Matthew, chapter 1, specifically functions then as Jesus's origin story. You're a big origin story person. This is Jesus's genesis. And I want you to remember that As you think about Matthew chapter 1, thinking about Genesis chapter 1. So last week, Imani went through his genealogy, which is a connection point from Jesus to the Old Testament. It's a bridge. 
It shows you how Jesus is that guy and how he connects to the line of David, which he had to in order to be the Messiah. And today, the second part of the chapter talks about his conception, which reveals that Jesus is distinctly human, but also a little bit more. If you want to open your Bibles, you can read online, you can use your phone, whatever. I'm going to read Matthew chapter 1, 18 to 24 from the ESV. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed or engaged to Joseph, before they came together, which is to say before they had sex, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived, or that which is happening in her, the baby, is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. And all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Good listening, Joseph. Uh, now, for most people, when they knew, and I'm talking about for most people, the people who lived when Jesus lived, who, know, who knew Mary and Joseph, they had dinner together, they were friends, they went to Joseph's carpentry shop, they didn't think Jesus' birth was divine. In fact, they thought it was pretty dodgy. And Jesus would have experienced quite a bit of gossip and all sorts of opinions and stares, and as would his parents and his siblings, for the whole of their lives. Because all, as far as they were concerned, Mary and Joseph got busy beforehand, and this baby, who is certainly still welcome, is not done in the normal way that things should have been done, meaning they should have been married first. But Matthew who knew Jesus, walked with Jesus, and is able to write this book down after Jesus has lived and died and rose again, realizes that there's something not so dodgy about Jesus' birth, but actually something pretty divine that's connected back to the Old Testament. He sees the circumstances around how Jesus is born. You know, mom has a baby before everything happens, and there's all sorts of other signs involved in that. And he says, you know, this sounds an awful lot like this chapter in Isaiah 7 and in, in, excuse me, in 7 and in 8, the two chapters, where Isaiah is talking to King Ahaz. And there's a situation, and, God, and Isaiah comes and he says to Ahaz, you know, God is going to give you a child, the virgin or young woman will conceive. She's going to give birth to a son, and we're going to call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. And at the time, not a single person no one flagged that conversation between Isaiah and Ahaz as anything. They're like, oh, okay. They all thought it was for the present time where they had oppressive kingdoms breathing on their backs, essentially, and that God was going to send a son through Ahaz's line to rescue his family, to rescue Israel. And so everyone was like, all right, and it happens. And so they just chalk it up as like, oh, that was a cool like, prophecy for right now. No one thought a single word of it until Matthew says, wait a minute. This sounds an awful lot like the Jesus that we know and love. He has the full picture of Jesus's life, everything that's happened from birth to death to resurrection. And he realizes when he looks back, oh my goodness, this 
passage is also talking about Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus. And God is specifically saying in this passage that he's going to send a son in a uniquely divine way to hit reset on the whole darn thing. If we look at the virgin birth, we need to understand that specifically God is trying to get us to think back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2. It is meant to mirror or parallel the very first creation because Jesus is creation 2.0. And if that's the only thing you remember from this message today, you can put it in your phone. Jesus is creation 2.0 after we have gone back from the blue screen of death. His conception or being born by a maiden or by implication, an unmarried woman, which would be a virgin, wasn't for hype, right? Like they weren't saying, oh, Jesus needs to come in some special way so we all remember him. And it wasn't because God hates sex. We've talked about this at length in the last couple of months. And it's not because God hates men. So if you're trying to like use this as some weird patriarchal thing, it's not. Jesus is supposed to be mirroring the same thing that happens in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. In fact, Genesis 1:27 says, So God created human beings in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. How did God make the first two people? He created them. Right. Adam and Eve were not born. They were created through the sole agency of God. His decision, his desire, his planning and purpose. He's the one who puts them all together with dust and bones and all sorts of stuff and breathes his life into them. The first creation, the start of the world, the beginning of humanity, quite literally the genesis of it all, is God as creator creating getting his hands dirty, if you will, putting all of the things together. The virgin birth, which is Jesus's conception solely through the agency of the Holy Spirit, right? As far as I know, a woman can't get pregnant without a seed, right? It's just not possible. So solely through the agency of the Holy Spirit is God creating again. It's him coming down and making another human being in a way that he hasn't done since the very beginning. Because every other human being since Adam and Eve has been born through a man and a woman coming together. But here we get to Jesus and there's an interruption in the pattern where God says, wait a minute, we need to do this whole divine reset thing. And I'm sending the person who's going to do it, but they are not going to be just another one in the chain. I am going to effectively recreate, create again, start again. And I'm going to do that by making or creating a human. But what I love in all of that process is that it's not done without the consent or partnership of Mary. God asks her permission first. And we read that in the Luke account because Matthew is actually from Joseph's point of view. So if you want to read Mary's perspective on the whole thing, just jump ahead to Luke, it's okay. But he goes to her and he says, you have found favor, do you want to do this? See, that's the other interesting break in the chain. In Genesis chapters 1 and 2, God does everything all by himself. But that's not how he wanted humanity to be, right? We were made to be in relationship and intimacy and partnership with God. That was what we were created for. And so in creation 2.0, God says, I'm resetting this whole thing that's gone awry. And I'm going to do it the way that I've always wanted to do it, which is the divine partnering with the human to create what is good and beautiful and whole. That's what Jesus' conception is supposed to tell us, 
not just this cool story about a God who's like, hey, I'm going to come and join you, and I'm going to do it through this funky sort of way, but him saying, I'm quite literally using this conception moment to restart everything that has gone wrong. I'm hitting reboot. And the beautiful part about it is in the whole of the Old Testament, most of the reboots look like wiping stuff out to kind of start over. And God says, I'm not going to do that. I am going to fix this virus from the inside out. Instead of just hitting erase, I'm injecting the cure right into the mess. And slowly, it is meant to overwhelm the virus and kick it out. And he does that by having Jesus come the way that Adam and Eve essentially came, being created through the agency of God. So Jesus is the new human, the new Adam. He is the firstborn of the new creation, God resetting the whole wide world from beginning to end. But how is he going to do the whole work of healing, right? Like this is a big virus, big mess, inside, outside, lots of consequences. That's a big whole world to kind of like turn everything around on. Well, Matthew says that the two names that we read in this passage are the things that give us the clue to that. The first name is Jesus. And I want to remember because not... Americans aren't always super keen to understand this, but many cultures, when they choose what to name a child, they are acknowledging that that name means something and they're proclaiming that meaning over that child for the rest of their lives, right? There's an identity thing within names, um, which is why it's so fascinating to see what names mean and then to look at the personality of said children or adults that are attached to them. This is why some of you are like, I will never name my child that because you've seen someone and you're like, that didn't go well. Um, but the name Jesus is Greek, and it is a parallel to the Hebrew name Joshua or Yeshua, and it had the meaning of God is my rescuer, my redeemer, my deliverance, my savior, and it's meant to go back to Joshua that we read in the Old Testament, the guy who says, oh, okay, Moses, you're dead. I'm going to come and take over, and I'm going to bring the people into the promised land because God has chosen me to deliver them and get them started in this whole new life, this good life, this promised land that you have saved and set aside for us. And so by giving Jesus the name Jesus, God is saying this child is going to be a rescuer, a redeemer, a savior. He is going to do things for his people that are going to bring them from a place of bondage and brokenness into a place of healing and hope and wholeness. And that's a cool name, and it would have been a common name, so it wasn't like Jesus was the only Jesus running around back in the day. Emmanuel, on the other hand, was definitely off the table. Nobody was naming their kid Emmanuel back in the day because it's a really big thing to say about your kid. That kind of would be like us naming our kid Jesus today. Um, Emmanuel means God with us. And so if you're, you have to be pretty bold as a parent to be like, my child is God with us, right? <laughs> People just didn't do it. There was a different level of propriety too. I was thinking, I'm like, I wouldn't doubt that someone would do that today. But back then it was way, way worse. And so there's, there's something unique to God also saying this child has these two names. He is Jesus, rescuer and redeemer, but he is also Emmanuel, which means God with us. This child is fully human. He has a human mother, but his birth is also a partnership of the human and the divine, which means this child is also fully divine. And that's not random either or, or for hype or because it just sounds like a good part to the story. Paul later says that this child in Colossians 2.9, in him lives the fullness of God in a human body, 
We've got the divine and the human mashed up and merged into this Jesus. And his divinity is significant because if God, if this child is God in the flesh, then it means that he is in harmony or unity with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit because he is the Son. So he's in harmony. All three of them are together. It means he hasn't rebelled against them, which means he isn't infected with sin, right? The divinity is the access point, right, to that perfect life that we were created to live that no human being has ever lived because we want to be in control. We want to be God. But Jesus comes and humbles himself, even though he is God. It says in Philippians 2, 6 through 7, even though he is a part of the Trinity, he did not come and say, I am like God. By becoming human, he humbles himself to the point of dying out of obedience because he says, I am also fully human. And so he has the divinity and the purity or the righteousness of God, but he also has the fullness of his humanity, which allows him to be like us, to live among us, to understand us. And the two of them together, essentially these two stories together of Jesus and Emmanuel, the two names, tell us how God is going to rescue us from sin. Jesus, Emmanuel, is going to be the kind of human we were all created to be, what we were supposed to be, right? Who's going to live his entire life yielded to God, never trying to usurp authority from God, never trying to be his own God, but instead living totally yielded, fully surrendered, and therefore fully obedient and always without sin. And because he is without sin, and we trace that through the rest of the whole story. I mean, you can read all of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Because he is never at any point um, turning against God, because he always lives without sin, then he is able to crush sin the way that it talks about in Genesis chapter 3. He quite literally says, I can destroy the very thing that is with this virus that's within all of humanity because I never succumbed to it. I never turned my back on God, even when it was hard. And my obedience, I destroyed it. And that sounds really lovely for Jesus, right? You're like, oh, well, good for you. You lived a perfect, sinless life, and that's nice and wonderful. But Jesus didn't do that for himself. He didn't need to come to earth for him. This wasn't like some part of a weird adventure thing where I'm going to go try and be a human for a while, and maybe it'll be fun. I don't think he would have picked that timeline, perhaps, maybe. Um, Jesus came for us. Not because he needed to experience what life was like. He can see that very clearly from heaven. He came because he needed to step into our reality and say, hey, you can't fix yourself. And it's interesting because selfishness and sin didn't really go down without a fight. Jesus allowed himself to be murdered. And on the external we can read the story and say, well, yeah, those people were jealous and they were bitter and they wanted revenge. They wanted to take over because um, Jesus was getting a following and they didn't like it. But all of those things expressed by those Jewish leaders were folks who were, it was the external representation of the internal virus, right? That's what sin does. It makes us jealous. It makes us bitter. It makes us vengeful. It makes us angry. And so selfishness, that virus, kills Jesus. And the, and the virus is like, ha-ha, I've won. But what happened in Jesus' death is actually what opens the door for us to receive the cure that we all need from him. Got my alarm from Imani, in case you two are back there counting. 
2 Corinthians 5 tells us he died for everyone. It was in his death and then his rising again that God says, hey, the cure can now be yours. It moves beyond Jesus, the new creation and the new Adam, to say now I can invite a whole family of people into wholeness and healing and health and restoration. People can actually enjoy feeling what it's like to be close to God and to be working and enjoying goodness. We still make mistakes, but we can understand what it means to be the way that God created us to be. And 2 Corinthians tells us, Jesus died for everyone so that those who receive his life, who embrace him as their king, will no longer live for themselves, which means the virus is gone, right? We're not living for selfishness anymore. I'm not my own God anymore. Instead, they will live for Christ, which means I've given authority or godship back to God who died and was raised for me. This means anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone and a new life has begun. Last week we said hope has a name. This week I want to tell you that your fresh start has a name. And it's Jesus, Emmanuel, God with you. We all need one. None of us is perfect. None of us is good. We all need a fresh start. And it's not through some five-step program or some fitness app or through some cool relationship or through some money. Those fresh starts, those things that we look to to try and reset ourselves, especially as January is coming, they're not bad, but they're not the thing we need the most. What we need the most is him, Jesus, Emmanuel, God coming to live with you. The message tells us God took up residence in the neighborhood. He moved into the block. Again, for you and me, I want you to, if you're able to, you can rise. We're going to move into ministry time. I want you to hear what he says about this moving in. Revelation 21 tells us that God is resetting creation. Jesus is the beginning of creation 2.0. And the end result in Revelation 21 is to see, is to hear, John says, I heard a loud shout from the throne and said, look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. The presence of God among us will become our normal. And it will set everything right. Because when God moves into the block, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. And the beauty of our fresh start internally is that we don't have to wait for that then. We can begin to experience heaven now. That's part of our inheritance as his children. He doesn't say life won't still be difficult. He says you can experience the peace of knowing that you have citizenship in heaven today. If you have never made the choice to bow to King Jesus, it's not a simple thing to do. Because what you're doing is saying, I don't want control of my life anymore. I want to give all authority, all decision-making, all opinions, all beliefs over to him. And that's a big choice, not one to be made lightly because you're giving him your whole self. But there's freedom in that. There's a fresh start in that. 
And so if that's what you know you need this morning, if you're feeling that like, I can't, I've tried to fix myself. I've tried to put my marriage back together. I've tried to fix this. I've tried to handle my addiction and do all these things on my own and it keeps failing. Have you yielded to him? Have you yielded to him? Doing that says, it's, it's having this internal conversation where you're just like, God, I choose to surrender my life to you.